Section 9 of All Afloat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. All Afloat, a chronicle of craft and waterways by William Wood. Steamers. Steamers, and all other machine-driven craft, are of very much greater importance to Canada now than canoes and sailing craft together. But their story can be told in a chapter no longer than the one devoted to canoes alone, and this for several reasons. The tale of the canoe begins somewhere in the immemorial past and is still being told today. The story of the sailing ship is not so old as this, but it is as old as the history of Canada. It is inseparably connected with Canada's fortunes in peace and war. It is Canada's best sea story of the recent past, and, to a far greater extent than the tale of the canoe, it is also a story of the present and the immediate future. Moreover, sailing craft helped to make turning points of Canadian history, as only a single steamer ever has. Sailing craft made Canada known distinctively among every great seafaring people, as steamers never have. And while the building, ownership, and actual navigation of sailing craft once made Canada fourth among the shipping countries of the world, the change to steam and steel, coinciding with the destruction of the handiest timber and the development of inland forms of business, but no less than eight successful rivals ahead of her. Everyone knows that James Watt turned the power of steam to practical use in the 18th century, but it was not till the first year of the 19th that a really workable steamer appeared, though the British, French, and Americans had been experimenting for years, just as ingenious men had been experimenting with stationary engines long before Watt. This pioneer steamer was the Charlotte Dundas, which ran on the Forth and Clyde Canal in Scotland in 1801. Six years later, Fulton's Claremont, engined by the British firm of Bolton and Watt, ran on the Hudson from New York to Albany. Two years later again, the Accommodation, the first steamer in Canada, was launched at Montreal and engined there as well. She was built for John Molson by John Bruce, a shipbuilder, and John Jackson, an engineer. She was 85 feet overall and 16 feet in the beam. Her engine was 6 horsepower and her trial speed 5 knots an hour. She was launched broadside on behind the old Molson Brewery. She was fitted up for 20 passengers, but only 10 went on her maiden trip. The fare was $8 down to Quebec and $10 back. The following is interesting as a newspaper account of the first trip made by the first Canadian steamer. It is taken, word for word, from an original copy of the Quebec Gazette of November 9, 1809. The steamboat, which was built in Montreal last winter, arrived here on Saturday last, being her first trip. She was 66 hours on the passage, of which she was at anchor 30, so that 36 hours is the time which, in her present state, she takes to come down from Montreal to Quebec, over 160 statute miles. On Sunday last, she went up against wind and tide from Brihoe's Wharf to Limburners, but her progress was very slow. It is obvious that her machinery at present has not sufficient force for this river, but there can be no doubt of the possibility of perfectioning it so as to answer every purpose for which she was intended and it would be a public loss should the proprietors be discouraged from persevering in their undertaking. They did not fail to persevere. When Molson found that ox teams were required to tow her up St. Mary's current below Montreal, he ordered a better engine of 30 horsepower from Bolton and Watt in England, and put it into the Swiftshire in 1811. This steamer was twice the size of the accommodation, being 120 by 24 feet. And the Quebec Gazette waxed eloquent about her. The steamboat arrived here from Montreal on Sunday. She started from Montreal at five o'clock on Saturday morning and anchored at Three Rivers, which she left on Sunday morning at five o'clock and arrived at the King's Wharf, Quebec, at half-past two. 
being only twenty-four hours and a half under way between the two cities with a strong headwind all the way. She is most superbly fitted up and offers accommodation for passengers in every respect equal to the best hotel in Canada. In short, for celerity and security, she well deserves the name of Swiftshore. America cannot boast of a more useful and expensive undertaking by one individual than this of Mr. Molson's. His Excellency, the Governor-in-Chief, set out from Montreal on Tuesday afternoon in the steamboat. The following letter from Molson, for the information of Sir George Prevost, Governor-General during the War of 1812, refers to one of the first tenders ever made in any part of the world to supply steamer transport for either naval or military purposes. It was received at Quebec by Commissary General Robinson on February 6, 1813. I received a letter from the military secretary, under date of the 15th December last, informing me of His Excellency's approval of a tender I had made of the steamboat for the use of government, wherein I am likewise informed that you would receive instructions to cause an arrangement to be made for her service during the ensuing season. For the transport of troops and conveyance of light stores, it will be necessary to fit her up in a manner so as to be best adapted for the purpose, which will be, in my opinion, something after the mode of a transport. For a passage boat, she would have to be fitted up quite in a different manner. If you wish her to be arranged in any particular manner under the direction of any person, I am agreeable. I should be glad to be informed if His Excellency wishes or expects that I shall sail in her myself, whether government or I furnish the officers and men to navigate and pilot her. The engineer accepted. The fuel and all other necessaries that may be required for her use. I imagine the arrangement must be for the season, not by the trip, as government may wish to detain her for particular purposes. Insurance, I do not believe, can be effected for less than 30% on the season, therefore I must take the risk upon myself. Within five years of this tender, Molson St. Lawrence Steamboat Company had six more steamers running. In 1823, a towboat company was formed, and the Hercules towed the Margaret from Quebec to Montreal. The well-known word tug was soon brought into use from England, where it originated from the fact that the first towboat in the world was called the Tug. In 1836, before the first steam railway ran from La Prairie to St. John's, the Torrance Line, in opposition to the Molson Line, was running the Canada, which was then the largest and fastest steamer in the whole New World. Meanwhile, steam navigation had been practiced on the Great Lakes for twenty years, for in 1817 the Little Ontario and the Big Frontenac made their first trips from Kingston to York, now Toronto. The Frontenac was built at Finkel's Point, Ernestown, eighteen miles from Kingston, by Henry Thibault an American who had been employed in the shipyards of Sackett's Harbour at the time of the abortive British attack in 1813. She was about 700 tons, schooner-rigged, engined by Bolton and Watt, and built at a total cost of $135,000. A local paper said that her proportions strike the eye very agreeably, and good judges have pronounced this to be the best piece of naval architecture of the kind yet produced in America. Canals and steamers naturally served each other's turn. There was a great deal of canal building in the twenties. The Lachine Canal, opening up direct communication west of Montreal, was dug out by 1825, the Welland across the Niagara Peninsula by 1829, and the Rideau near Ottawa by 1832. A few very small canals had preceded these. Others were to follow them, and they were themselves in their infancy of size and usefulness. But the beginning had been made. The early Canadian steamers and canals did credit to a poor and thinly peopled country but none of them ranked as a pioneering achievement in the world at large. This kind of achievement was reserved for the Royal William, a vessel of such distinction in the history of shipping that her career must be followed out in detail. She was the first of all seagoing steamers, the first that ever crossed an ocean entirely under steam, and the first that ever fired a shot in action. 
but her claims and the spurious counterclaims against her must both be made quite clear. She was not the first steamer that ever put out to sea for the Yankee Phoenix made the little coasting trip from Hoboken to Philadelphia in 1809. She was not the first steamer in Canadian salt water for the St. John crossed the Bay of Fundy in 1826, and she was not the first vessel with a steam engine that crossed an ocean for the Yankee Savannah crossed from Savannah to Liverpool in 1819. The Phoenix and St. John call for no explanation. The Savannah does, especially in view of the claims so freely made, and allowed for her as being the first regular steamer to cross an ocean. To begin with, she was not a regular sea-going steamer with auxiliary sails like the Royal William, but a so-called clipper-built, full-rigged ship of three hundred tons with a small auxiliary engine and paddle-wheels made to be let down her sides when the wind failed. She did not even steam against headwinds, but tacked. She took a month to make Liverpool, and she used steam for only eighty hours altogether. She could not, indeed, have done much more, because she carried only seventy-five tons of coal and twenty-five cords of wood, and she made port with plenty of fuel left. Her original log, the official record every vessel keeps, disproves the whole case mistakenly made out for her by some far too zealous advocates. The claims of the Royal William are proved by ample contemporary evidence, as well as the subsequent statements of her master, John MacDougall, her builder, James Gowdy, and John Henry, the Quebec founder who made some castings for her engines the year after they had been put into her at Montreal. MacDougall was a seaman of indomitable perseverance, as his famous voyage to England shows. Gowdy, though only twenty-one, was a most capable naval architect born in Canada and taught his profession in Scotland. His father was a naval architect before him and had built several British vessels of the Great Lakes for service against the Americans during the War of 1812. Both Gowdy and Henry lived to retell their tale in 1891 when the Canadian government put up a tablet to commemorate what pioneering work the Royal William had done, both for the intercolonial and interimperial connection. The first stimulus to move the promoters of the Royal William was the subsidy of $12,000 offered by the government of Lower Canada in 1830 to the owners of any steamer over 500 tons that would ply between Quebec and Halifax. Half this amount had been offered in 1825, but the inducement was not then sufficient. The Quebec and Halifax Navigation Company was formed by the leading merchants of Quebec joined with a few in Halifax. The latter included the three Cunard brothers, whose family name has been a household word in transatlantic shipping circles from that day to this. On September 2, 1830, Gowdy laid the keel of the Royal William in the yard belonging to George Black, a shipbuilder, and his partner, John Saxton Campbell, formerly an officer in the 99th Foot, and at this time a merchant and shipowner in Quebec. The shipyard was situated at Cape Cove beside the St. Lawrence, a mile above the Citadel, and directly in line with the spot on which Wolfe breathed his last after the Battle of the Plains. The launch took place on Friday afternoon, April 29, 1831. Even if all the people present had then foreknown the Royal William's career, they could not have done more to mark the occasion as one of truly national significance. The leaders among them certainly looked forward to some great results at home. Quebec was the capital of Lower Canada, and every Canadian statesman hoped that the new steamer would become a bond of union between the three different parts of the country the old French province by the St. Lawrence, the old British provinces down by the sea, and the new British province up by the lakes. The mayor of Quebec proclaimed a public holiday, which brought out such a concourse of shipwrights and other shipping experts as hardly any other city in the world could show. Lord Aylmer was there as governor-general to represent King William IV, after whom the vessel was to be named the Royal William by Lady Aylmer. This was most appropriate as the Sailor King had been the first member of any royal house to set foot on Canadian soil, 
which he did at Quebec in 1787, as an officer in HMS Pegasus. The guard and band from the 32nd foot were drawn up near the slip. The gunners of the Royal Artillery were waiting to fire the salute from the new citadel, which, with the walls, was nearing completion, after the imperial government had spent $35 million in carrying out the plans approved by Wellington. Lady Aylmer took the bottle of wine, which was wreathed in a garland of flowers, and throwing it against the bows, pronounced the historic formula, God bless the Royal William and all who sail in her. Then, amid the crash of arms and music, the roaring of artillery, and the enthusiastic cheers of all the people, the stately vessel took to the water to begin a career the like of which no other Canadian vessel ever equaled before that time or since. Her engines, which developed more than 200 horsepower, were made by Bennett and Henderson in Montreal, and sent to meet her a few miles below the city, as the vessel towing her up could not stem St. Mary's current. Her hull was that of a regular sea-going steamer, thoroughly fit to go foreign, and not the hull of an ordinary sailing ship like the Savannah, with paddles hung over the sides in a calm. Gowdy's master, Simmons of Greenock, had built four steamers to cross the Irish Sea, and Gowdy probably followed his master's practice when he gave the Royal William two deep scoops to receive the paddle-boxes nearer the bows than the stern. The tonnage by builder's measurement was 1,370, though by net capacity of burden only 363. The length overall was 176 feet, on the keel 146. Including the paddle-boxes, the breadth was 44 feet, and, as each box was eight feet broad, there were twenty-eight feet clear between them. The depth of hold was seventeen feet nine inches, the draft fourteen feet. The rig was that of a three-masted topsail schooner. There were fifty passenger berths and a good saloon. The three trips between Quebec and Halifax in 1831 were most successful. But 1832 was the year of the Great Cholera, especially in Quebec, and the Royal William was so harassed by quarantine that she had to be laid up there. The losses of that disastrous season decided her owners to sell out next spring for less than a third of her original cost. She was then degraded for a time into a local tug, or sometimes an excursion boat. But presently she was sent down to Boston, where the band at Fort Independence played her in to the tune of God Save the King, because she was the first of all steamers to enter a seaport of the United States under the Union Jack. Ill luck pursued her new owners, who, on her return to Quebec, decided to send her to England for sale. She left Quebec on August 5, 1833, cold at Picto, which lies on the gulf side of Nova Scotia, and took her departure from there on the 18th for her epoch-making voyage, with the following most prosaic clearance. Royal William, 363 tons, 36 men, John MacDougall Master, bound to London, British. Cargo, 254 cauldrons of coals, nearly 300 tons. A box of stuffed birds and six spars, produce of this province. One box and one trunk, household furniture, and a harp, all British, and seven passengers. The fare was fixed at twenty pounds, not including wines. The voyage soon became eventful. Nearly three hundred tons of coal was a heavy concentrated cargo for the tremendous storm she encountered on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. She strained, her starboard engine was disabled, she began to leak, and the engineer came up to tell MacDougall she was sinking. But MacDougall held his course, started the pumps, and kept her under way for a week with only the port engine going. The whole passage from Picto, counting the time she was detained at Cow's repairing boilers, took twenty-five days. MacDougall, a sturdy Scotsman, native of Oban, must have been sorely tempted to put the kettle off the boil and run her under sail. But either the port or starboard engine, or both, worked her the whole way over, 
and thus forever established her claim to priority in transatlantic navigation under steam alone. In London she was sold for £10,000, just twice what she had fetched at sheriff's sale in Quebec some months before. She was at once chartered, crew and all, by the Portuguese government, who declined to buy her for conversion into a man of war. In 1834, however, she did become a man of war, this time under the Spanish flag, though flying the broad pennant of Commodore Henry, who was then commanding the British Auxiliary Steam Squadron against the Carlists in the north of Spain. Two years later, on May 5, 1836, under her Spanish name of Isabella Segunda, she made another record. When the British Legion, under Sir de Lacey Evans, was attacking the Carlists in the Bay of St. Sebastian, she stood in towards the Carlist flank, and thereupon fired the first shot that any steam man-of-war had ever fired in action. Strangely enough, she cannot be said to have come to any definite end as an individual ship. She continued in the Spanish service until 1840, when she was sent to Bordeaux for repairs. The Spaniards, who were notorious slovens at keeping things ship-shape, had allowed her to run down to bear rot after her British or Canadian crew had left her. So the French bought her for a hulk and left her where she was. But the Spaniards took her engines out and put them into a new Isabella Segunda, which was wrecked in a storm on the Algerian coast in 1860. Her career of record-making is well worth a general summary. The Royal William was the first steamer built to foster intercolonial trade in Canada, the first Canadian steamer specially designed for work at sea, the first sea-going steamer to enter a port in the United States under the British flag, the first steam transport in Portugal, the first steam man-of-war in Spain, the first naval steamer that ever fired a shot in action, and the first vessel in the world that ever crossed an ocean under steam alone. The next step in the history of Canadian steamers is not concerned with a ship, but with a man. Sir Hugh Allen, who, though the greatest, was not the first of the pioneers. The Cunard brothers preceded the Allen brothers in establishing a transatlantic line. Samuel Cunard had been one of the shareholders in the Royal William. He had wonderful powers of organization. He knew the shipping trade as very few have ever known it, and his name has long since been historical in this connection. The first Cunarder to arrive in Canada was the Britannia. 1,154 tons built on the Clyde, and engined there by Napier. From that time on till Confederation, that is, from 1840 to 1867, Cunarders ran from Liverpool to Halifax, but Halifax was always treated as a port of call. The American ports were the real destination. And after 1867, the Cunarders became practically an Anglo-American, not an Anglo-Canadian line. During their connection with Canada, partially renewed in the present century, the Cunards never did anything really original. They were not among the first to make the change from wood to iron, or from paddle wheels to screws, but they did business honestly and well, and always took care of their passengers' safety. The Cunards were Canadians. Sir Hugh Allen was a Scotsman, but he and the line he founded are unchallengeably first in their services to Canada. Hugh Allen was born in 1810, the son of a Scottish master mariner, who about that time was mate of a transport carrying supplies to the British Army in the Peninsular War. He arrived in Canada when he was only fifteen, entered the employ of a Montreal shipping firm when he came of age, and at forty-eight obtained complete control of it with his brother Andrew. From that day to this, the Allen family have been the acknowledged leaders of Canadian transatlantic shipping. Hugh Allen was a man of boundless energy, iron will, and consummate business ability. The political troubles of the Pacific Scandal in 1873 prevented him from anticipating the present Canadian Pacific Railway in making a single united service of trains and steamers to connect England with China and both with Canada. 
but what he did succeed in carrying through, against long odds, was quite enough for one distinguished business lifetime. He began by running a line of sailing craft between Montreal and the mother country in conjunction with his father's firm in Glasgow. Then, in 1853, he and his brother headed a company which ordered two iron-screw steamers to be built in Scotland for the St. Lawrence. The first of these, the Canadian, came out to Quebec on her maiden voyage in 1854. But both she and her sister ship were soon diverted to the Crimea, where high rates were being paid for transports during the war. In 1858, the Allens contracted with the government for a weekly mail service and bought out all their partners, as they alone considered that the time had come for such a venture. The subsidy was doubled the next year to prevent the collapse of the service after a widespread financial panic. But heavy forfeits were imposed for lateness in delivering mails, an adverse factor in the greatest fight against misfortune ever known to Canadian shipping history. Within eight years the Allens lost as many vessels. In every case there was disastrous loss of property, in some a total loss of everything, vessel, cargo, crew, and passengers. No other firm has ever had to face such a storm of persistent adversity, but the indomitable Allens emerged triumphant, and by the time of Confederation in 1867 the worst was over. Thenceforth they are first in all respects till very recently. In the introduction of shipbuilding improvements they are without a rival still. Their Bavarian was the first Atlantic liner entirely built of steel. Their Parisian the first to be fitted with bilge keels. Their Virginian and Victorian the first to use the turbine. There are only two other salient features of Canadian steamer history that can be mentioned beside the Royal William and the Allens, the Richelieu and Ontario Navigation Company, and the Canadian Pacific Railway's merchant fleet. True, neither of these comes into quite the same class. The Royal William occupies an absolutely unique position in the world at large. The Allens are more intimately connected with the history of Canadian shipping than any other family or firm. Both the Royal William and the Allens are landmarks, but the Richelieu and Ontario Navigation Company and the Canadian Pacific Railway Company have also shown abundant energy turned to effective national account. The Richelieu Steamboat Company was formed in 1845 and took its other title 30 years later when it made its first great merger. It began in a very humble way by running two little market boats between Sorel and Montreal. From the first it had to fight for its commercial life the train was beginning to be a formidable competitor. But the fight to a finish was the fight of boat against boat. Fares were cut and cut again. At last the passengers were offered bed, board, and transportation for the price of a single meal. Every day there was a desperate race on the water. The rival steamers shook and panted in their self-destroying zeal to be the first to get the gangway down. Clouds of fire-streaked smoke poured from their funnels. More than once a cargo that would burn well was thrown into the furnaces to keep the steam up. The public became quite as keen as any of the crews or companies, and worked excitement up to fever pitch by crowding the wharves to gamble madly on this daily river derby. The stress was too much for the weaker companies. One by one they either fell out or merged in. After the merger with the Ontario Company in 1875, things went on, with many ups and downs, more in the usual way of competition. Finally, in 1913, a general pooling merger was effected by which practically all Canadian lines came under one control, from the lower Great Lakes, down the St. Lawrence, through the Gulf, and south, away to the West Indies. The title of this new merger is the Canadian Steamship Lines Limited. The Canadian Pacific Railway Company has half a dozen different fleets at work, one on the Atlantic, another as a Trans-Pacific Line, and a third on the Pacific Coast, a fourth on the lakes of British Columbia, a fifth on the Upper Great Lakes, and a sixth as ferries for its trains. 
Thus, by taking the upper Great Lakes and the west, it divides the trans-Canadian waters with the Canada steamship lines, which latter take the lower Great Lakes and the east. A company whose annual receipts and expenditure are balanced at not far short of two hundred millions of dollars might well seem to be all-important in every way, especially when its shipping tonnage exceeds that of the Allens by over thirty thousand. But this chronicle is a history of at least four hundred years. While the famous CPR has not as yet been either forty years a railway line or twenty years a shipping firm, there is only one great CPR disaster to record, but that is of appalling magnitude. Over a thousand lives were lost when the Norwegian collier, Storstad, sank the Empress of Ireland off Rimouski in 1914. The five principal features of Canadian steamship history have now been pointed out. John Molson's pioneer boats, the Royal William, the Allen Line, the R&O, now the Canada Steamship Lines, and the CPR. No other individual feature has any noteworthy Canadian peculiarities, nor does the general evolution of steam navigation in or around Canada differ notably in other respects from the same evolution elsewhere. Steamers have adapted themselves to circumstances in Canada very much as they have in other countries, pushing their persistent way step by step into all the navigable waters, fresh or salt. The Canadian waters, especially the fresh waters, certainly have some marked characteristics of their own, but the steamers have acquired no special character in consequence. Both Canadian and visiting steamers have always had their duplicates on many other oceans, lakes, and rivers. There is the ubiquitous tug, stubby, noisy, self-assertive, small, but in its several varieties the handiest all-round little craft afloat. It is worth noting that in the special class of sea tugs, the Dutch, and not the British, are easily first. A curious exception to the general rule of British supremacy at sea. Then, with many variations and several intermediate types, there are the two main distinctive kinds of inland vessels. The long, low, grimy, cargo-carrying whaleback, tank-ship, barge, or other useful form of ugliness, simply meant to nose her way through quite safe waters with the utmost bulk her huge stuffed maw will hold. And at the opposite end of the scale, the high, white, gaily decorated palace steamer, with tier upon tier of decks, and a strong suggestion of the theatre all through. Seagoing craft show the same variations within a given type, and the same intermediate types between the two ends of the scale, but the general distinction is quite as well marked, though the necessity for seaworthy hulls brings about a closer resemblance along the waterline. There is the cargo boat, long, comparatively low, and rather dingy, with derricks and vast holds which remind one of the tentacles and stomach of an octopus. The opposite extreme is the great passenger liner, much larger and more shapely in the hull, but best distinguished at any distance by her towering white superstructural decks, with their clean-run symmetry fore and aft. The Britisher is the predominant type in Canadian waters. This is natural enough, considering that the British Isles build nearly all Britishers, most Canadians, and many foreigners, and that the tonnage actually under construction there in 1913 exceeded the total tonnage owned by any other country except Germany and the United States while it greatly exceeded the total tonnage under construction in all other countries of the world put together, including Germany and the United States. The British practice is naturally the prevailing one both in shipbuilding and marine engineering, but there is a general conformity to certain leading ideas everywhere. The engine is passing out of the stage in which the fuel-made steam worked machinery, which in its turn worked propellers, and passing into the stage in which the latent forces of the fuel itself are brought to bear more directly on propellers, that is to say, into the stage of internal combustion engines and the turbine-driven screw. The hull has changed more and more in its proportions between length and breadth since the supplanting of wood by steel. 
Instead of a length equal at most to five beams, there are lengths of more than ten beams now. This means a radical change in framing. The old wooden vessel, as we have seen, had a frame looking like the skeleton of a man's body, with the keel for a backbone and multitudinous ribs at right angles to it. But the new steel vessel, especially if built on the excellent Isherwood principle, looks entirely different. The transverse ribs are there, of course, but in a modified form. They do not catch the eye, which now, instead of being drawn from side to side, is led along from end to end by what looks like, and really is, a complete ribbing of internal keels. The whole system has in fact been changed from the transverse to the longitudinal. The subject is well worth pursuing for its own sake, but the modern developments of naval architecture and waterborne trade which Canada shares with the rest of the world do not concern us any further here. End of Section 9